What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of On the Craft. Jeff Marshall, Brendan Morgan, reviewing movies, talking about art. It's what we do. Today's episode is Ishtar. Now, we've only reviewed one other movie prior to this, which was The Natural. This is a bulk of what we're going to be doing on this podcast is breaking down movies, talking about the performances, the writing, directing, production, the politics, all that fun stuff. So this is a movie I had never seen. Brandon, it's just a huge part of his life. He, he grew up with it. Him and his brother and, and other friends of his have a relationship with this movie. I had never even heard of it, let alone seen it. So the first time we ever speak about this movie in particular is on this episode. So that was kind of fun. One thing I would like to apologize about in advance is the volume. This was the second thing I had ever recorded in my life. And unfortunately, I really dropped the ball when it comes to levels on this one. Brandon especially, his volume's really low, so I apologize. It's 100% my fault. I still think you'll be able to understand it and hear it just with a little bit of extra volume, so I do apologize. Episodes from here on out should be much better. Like I said, this was the second thing I'd ever recorded, so unfortunately my engineering skills were not that strong. In any event, this is Ishtar. Hope you guys enjoy it. We are supported by Carnies. Guys, when you're in Hollywood, you're hungry, maybe thirsty for an adult beverage, and you want a classic burger. Brandon, where do you go to get a classic burger in the heart of Hollywood? If you were thinking about an iconic mecca of Hollywood to get a good old-fashioned burger, where do you go? Well, first of all, what do you think about when you think about classic Hollywood? You think about the Sunset Strip and what burger joint lays right in the very heart of the Sunset Strip. It's Carnies. It's Carnies. It's Carnies. <laughs> There's nowhere else to go, guys. If you want, and I'm not just talking about a burger. This guy, this is, the owner's name is John. One of the best guys you ever meet. Super sweet guy. And I'm talking they've got turkey burgers. Yeah, when I was on the slow-carb diet, I did the yeah. lettuce-wrapped turkey oh, burger every oh, day. Oh, the best. They, they are Juicy. still the best turkey burgers I've ever had. You know, you get a turkey burger, they're, they're dry. Not this one. They're like eating cardboard. Not this one at all. These are the best you've ever had. The hot does dogs he have snap when yeah, you bite into them? Absolutely. Because he's also got, does he have polar sausages? Absolutely. They got now gluten free buns. The chili there, forget about it. It's all. It's, it's unbelievable, it's guys. Terrific. So, not only that, you're talking about one of the most unique styled restaurants in terms of look because it is an old fashioned rail car from a actual train that they converted into a burger stand. Yep. So. Uh, if you guys are in the mood for a burger and you want an ice cold beer to go with it, check out Carney's. They're on Sunset Boulevard. Um, Fridays and Saturdays, they are open until 3 a.m. And there's also one in the Valley. I'm there's one sure. in Studio City. Yeah. yeah. Um, other than that, they're open until midnight every night. But guys, honestly, this is just one of the greatest companies, I think, within Hollywood. Uh, they, they love their regulars. They got nothing but a great positive staff that have all been there for years. So stop by, check out Carney's. Uh, tell them we sent you, and enjoy yourself a great burger and some chili. Robin Torch was denied a bank loan. It's on fire! Ow, now, brown cow. Ow, now, brown cow. The human torch was denied a bank loan. Speed, sound... Okay, so after our last episode, Jeff uh, asked me, so what are we going to do next? And I went, 
I don't know, dude. You tell me. You know, you're driving this this train. He says, "Well, let me know." And uh, and one it of took my, you some time. I know it took me a lot of time. And yeah. one of my favorite movies, honestly, one of my favorite movies of all time is a film from the '80s called Ishtar. And Jeff had never seen it, and and I like clutched at my chest in horror that he hadn't seen this masterpiece which he is totally justified in doing because this film <laughs> stars two of the biggest actors of their generation not only had i not seen it i had never even heard of it dustin hoffman and warren Beatty at the height of their powers i had i grabbed the dvd off of my shelf i gave it to jeff i said watch it and this is what we'll do jeff came back to me with okay I'm not going to tell you what I thought of the film. I'm going to wait and you're yes. going gonna to find out live <laughs> while we're recording. So a quick background for me. My brother introduced me to the movie. I don't even know how he found it. I think it was in um, the 99 cent bin at our local video store in the days before Blockbuster took over. Um, and it, we had the VHS copy laying around the house. Um, I had uh, broken an ankle uh, in high school playing volleyball. And so I was laid up for the first like month of uh, my junior year summer. And, uh, and I just watched that movie on repeat over and over and over and over again. And I had already started acting and I was into, um, uh, you know, very rudimentary level, like high school level acting teacher, but had some interest and some knowledge of the craft. And also I'd already been very aware of the brilliance of Dustin Hoffman and of Warren Beatty as these character actor, sometimes leading men, other times really serious Academy Award winners. And then they show up in this movie. And the roles that they're playing, Warren Beatty is playing an unattractive, like shy man. Whenever in Warren Beatty's life has he not been the most desired, handsome man in the world. Yeah, right. And conversely, Dustin Hoffman is playing this confident, right. like tough guy, women want him and men want to be him kind of guy. Right. And when has he ever played that guy in his life? He's always been... Maybe Ratso. Uh, maybe Ratso, but Ratso. He had the confidence. Confidence, kind sure, but it was... Misguided, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and then uh, I was a huge fan of Charles Grodin. Yeah. Uh, oh, was he's also so in it. Isabella Johnny is beautiful. Right. Um, and, uh, and that movie, <laughs> it became one of those movies between me and my brother and then ultimately through a larger circle of friends where we could communicate just with lines of dialogue from the movie, right. especially with the songs. Okay. Which so, we'll get to. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway. That's a topic all on yeah. itself. <laughs> so this movie came out in 1987, which Brandon already referenced. It was yeah. an 80s movie. It came out in 1987, written and directed by a woman named Elaine May. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm going to break this down for you guys because I know many of you have not even heard of this movie like I had not, and you've never even seen it. You know nothing about it. So I'm going to go ahead and give you some of those details now because I didn't know either and I had to do my homework. So Elaine May, again, much to my chagrin that I did not know anything about this person because she's extremely talented, especially as a writer. So if we go back and look at her, kind of her beginning in the, I'll say that the early 70s, she, she wrote a few films, three, three feature films, and then um, became friends with Warren Beatty when she wrote the screenplay for Heaven Can Wait. Correct. A few years later, she got an uncredited title, I guess you would say, for working on Reds for him as well. She like ghost writ, ghost wrote, excuse me, yeah. ghost wrote, like she did a polish, a dialogue polish. Exactly, yeah. which then she also got an uncredited, again, title on Tootsie. 
So the two lead actors in this film had a rapport with this woman. And now wait, before you go any further, look what happened with both of those. Reds won, you know, Academy Awards. Well, yeah, and he did too. More Tootsie, did. Dustin Hoffman, nominated at an iconic role. Right. So she, her writing did very did a lot for these two actors. And really established yeah. her credibility. Correct. That A, she was a powerhouse of a writer, but she had she had taken a stab at directing prior to Ishtar, but there was, you know, according to the dates here, I mean, she directed three feature films, but then nothing for about eight years before Ishtar came around. And so from what I researched and found out, both Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman felt kind of like they owed her. Like, look at, look at what this person did for us. She wants to make this movie. Let's get her this movie made. Warren Beatty was a huge activist for women's right and equality, especially within the industry. So he was really lobbying, lobbying for this movie to get made. He said, I'll star in it. I'll produce it. I'll get the studio backing. You write and direct. And that's also how he got Hoffman on board. Hoffman did turn it down originally. I guess the original idea was kind of maybe like a Bob Hope, Bill Cosby kind of, yeah, you know, a duo to take over instead. Mm-hmm. But eventually Warren got Dustin to, to hop on board. And make this movie. So I I have now watched it. I have I have watched I've I watched it twice, to be fair, to to well, my, my friend Brandon here, because that movie clearly means a lot to him. So I wanted to make sure I give it a fair shake. So here is my and Brandon has Brandon has not heard my reaction to this nothing. film yet. So he is hearing this for the first time. So you're gonna hear a conversation between he and I that okay. is in no way rehearsed uh, and has not been shared. I liked the movie. Okay. I did like it. Uh, I, it is not going to be one I watch over and over and over like you did, but <laughs> it's, I'm now 38. You probably watched it when you were eight. Um, yeah. So a different, a different time and a different kind of comedy. Most of all in this movie, I buy their love story. Mm-hmm. These guys are both schlubs. Mm-hmm. They are. These guys are kind of an 80s dumb and dumber to an extent where They've managed to find each other. No one else sees them as talented. These guys are songwriters. Uh, They do not claim to be singers, even though they do sing all their own music and they sing all their own songs in the movie. They admit they are not singers. So they're... We're not singers. No, no, no. no. We're We're songwriters. Right. (laughs) Which they write absolutely god-awful songs. Musically, they are not complex, nor are they good musicians. They are not. And lyrically... You, you, you basically, you could sit there as a non-songwriter yourself, look around your room at objects, put them in a sentence, and write the song. That's what these guys do. Okay, so hold on for a second. So here's what the movie's about. Basically, the movie starts, you're on an archaeological dig somewhere in the Middle East, and two archaeologists find an ancient map that foretells that there's a prophecy of two messengers of God that will deliver the people from under the oppressive weight of a terrible regime. Correct. Okay. Okay. Everybody wants this map for political reasons, for religious reasons. Okay. Politically, it could, if it gets into the wrong hands or whatever your political leanings are, the right hands, it will destabilize the Middle East and it could cause the people to rise up and revolt against the oppressive regime that's keeping them down. So the oppressive regime wants the map so they can destroy it. Okay. The political partner of that oppressive regime is the United States. 
So the United States government wants them also to get what they want to keep the region stable. So ostensibly we can keep getting our oil. We can keep our military bases exactly. in the region, whatever. Okay. <laughs> so really, really quick, the guy who finds the map hides it somewhere. We don't know where it's hidden. Okay. And then all of a sudden we're not in the Middle East anymore. Now we're in New York and, and we meet these two songwriters. Okay. And as Jeff said, they're terrible, terrible, terrible songwriters. Okay. They think that they're great. That's we'll, the joke. That is the joke. We'll get into the reasons yeah. behind that later. But I... That is the joke. Correct. Right. And that is, you know, that's... When I think about why the comedy aspect works of it, you know... I, they're both Brandon, Brandon and I are both trained actors. Mm -hmm. And the number one thing they teach you in comedy is it's life or death. Yes, 100%. So, you will not find uh, too many other actors that commit to that philosophy any more than these two, especially it, in this role, because it is an extreme gamble. Yeah, they don't miss a beat. For them to do this. They don't miss a beat. And they are 100% consistent throughout the entire movie that this is life or death. And not only that, the songwriting for them, being songwriters, is their life. Yep. And they don't want to live if they cannot write songs. So the duality of that, of it being a comedy and having that commitment to their craft, but also the commitment in the movie to their craft yep. plays beautifully. It yep. really does. And when you've got two really strong, amazing actors, you're going to get good material. So in the movie, <clears throat> they successfully are able to sign with a talent agent who gets them a booking playing at a hotel where uh, Americans from the embassy in Morocco stay. I feel like I should temper your expectations on what this quote unquote talent agent is. <laughs> but hold uh, on, just let me just get to the point. Oh yeah. So hold on. So they take the job. They're super stoked about it. They land in Morocco. Okay. And as they are, as they're about to go through customs, Dustin Hoffman is approached by a young revolutionary in disguise saying, you need to help me. I need your passport and the contents of your suitcase and your clothes so I can get across the border. It means my life. She sweet talks him. She appeals to his sense of adventure. She flashes him. She flashes her boobs. Always a strong, <laughs> bold move. And so Dustin Hoffman does it. He trades jackets, which is the important thing. Sorry, that was my first favorite <laughs> funny line of the movie. She pulls up her shirt, Look at, shows a Because she's dressed like a boy. And he thinks she... You think she's a boy. He first. thinks she, she is. And he's like, look. Look at what I'm you not... have. Oh, no. And he says, look. Wait, wait, wait. He thinks she's being hit on by a gay dude. <laughs> and he goes, hey, well, I, I, I'm straight. I'm straight. I, look, I respect your way of life. No judgments. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I appreciate it. I'm not interested. Flashes him, and he instantly stares... At the now covered breast, he's yeah. now staring under chest. So he goes, "Look at what you have." I'm a woman. He goes, "Yes, yes." And she begins to continue speaking. Yes, and, she, and he's still looking at her chest. But like right he, there, the die is cast. He's going to help her out. Absolutely. Okay. So the important thing is that they trade jackets, the passport, all that other stuff doesn't matter. All right. So now there's and the suitcase. Right. So now they're stuck in Ishtar. Um. Now. She. Basically, just, just to fast forward a lot, that's where the map was hidden. She didn't even know it. The map was hidden in the lining of her jacket. So she unwillingly, unwittingly gave away that which she wanted most. Okay. So now here we have the two Americans 
the two messengers of God uh, in the region there to just play at the embassy hotel. Which we should now, though, probably indicate is that they do split up here at this point. Yes. Which allows us to enter Charles Grodin. Correct. Correct. Since Dustin Hoffman no longer has his passport, he's delayed getting into Marrakesh. Warren Beatty gets to go there. Right. Dustin Hoffman gets approached by a Secret Service, a CIA agent who's out to just hustle him the whole time. And it's Charles Grodin, pitch perfect. Doing what this. he does best. Yeah, doing what he does best. So let's get back to uh, these guys as songwriters, Lyle Rogers and Chuck Clark. Lyle Rogers is the character that does, that Warren Beatty plays. Chuck Clark is Dustin Hoffman. So, look, no, I'm no clinical psychologist at all or psychiatrist, but it is the encapsulated version, vision perfectly realized Dunning-Kruger effect. Okay, Dunning-Kruger effect is a psychological condition that was identified and popularized by two clinical psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, okay, which states that, and I'm going to massacre this, I know, but you'll get the gist of it. It states that the intelligence required to be good at something, okay, the intelligence, not the talent, not the ability, the intelligence required to be good at something is the same intelligence that is required to realize that you're not good at something. Okay, so you don't know that you're not good at it. Mm-hmm. You can't know. You simply lack the intelligence to realize that you lack the intelligence to be good at it. So you just don't know. You're in this blissful state of ignorance thinking that you're great. And if you've ever watched the auditions for American Idol, You'll you see it. can see Those are the funny that ones that they show personified. you. They right. think that they're great. And, and, and they are shocked to learn. They're shocked. They think you're crazy. That these Simon. judges yeah, don't do see their see talent. The, right. Yeah, exactly. And it's sad to see, it's essentially, because... They'll, they'll go on the rest of their lives thinking right. that. Okay. Right. Now, as a writer in Hollywood, um, I, I I speak a lot. I work with people. I, and they're always asking me, can you read my stuff? When I was up and coming, there were some really good, talented people that agreed to read my stuff. It's tough to get people to read something. Absolutely. If there's, yeah. if there's nothing in it for them. But, right. Um, and I come across it a lot. There's mm-hmm. some people that you and I both know. I won't say their mm-hmm. names. Mm-hmm. Um, who I, and the one caveat that I give these people when I say, yeah, I'll read it. I said, but I'm going to be honest with you. With my assessment, of, and it's just one guy's opinion. Absolutely. doesn't mean right. you got to hang your hat on it. Right. But I'm going to be honest with you. And um, and a lot of the times, it's it's really, really terrible <laughs> when I'm reading. So, like everyone's stuff is when you're starting out. You yeah. know what I mean? Right. Um, but every now and then, you run into someone who doesn't believe you, who doesn't get that what they wrote is so terrible. Right. Um, it's like, have you never seen a movie before or read a book before or read a magazine article so you know where where this is lacking and where... You, do you not see how your material does not stack up right. do you, against this do material? Do you really think right. that you're going to send this out Correct. and it's going to get made and it's going to be a million dollar sale tomorrow? Which again, you've seen Simon Cowell a dozen times say, do you think you have Whitney Houston's voice? Because you don't. I'm here to tell you that you don't. <laughs> and they go, what are you talking about? And they're like, about? what are you talking about? I, I nailed that song. That's Rodgers and yeah, Clark. Right. And, 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 and right in the beginning of the movie, you see them writing their opus, Dangerous Business. <laughs> He's laughing because the song is as ridiculous <laughs> as the title, as, yeah, as the title and as you think business. it's going to be. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. And you see them 
Um, standing in front of a music store, okay, and Hoffman's talking to Beatty, and he goes, Lyle, dangerous business is as good as bridge over troubled water any day of the week. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you think so? He goes, of course. It's as good as anything Simon and Garfunkel ever wrote. And he believes it. And Dustin Hoffman, as an actor, lets us know that he believes it. There's no tongue-in-cheek from either of them the whole time. They're both straight men. Absolutely, they're that's what I'm saying. They're both straight men, and they're fucking hilarious. And that's why I believe the love story, because like I said, it's like another version of Dumb and Dumber. These two guys have found each other. Yep. So, and, and, and how they find each other is actually a perfect example of why you said they're never any kind of like tongue-in-cheek. They're not bullshitting one another. Hoffman is playing the piano and singing songs in a in a restaurant. At it's the, it's at a nicer restaurant. <laughs> anniversary dinner. You would know that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Singing an anniversary love tune to, to an older couple. And Warren Beatty happens to be there uh, having dinner with his wife and sees Hoffman playing and says, that's a, that's a guy that knows how to write music. Wow. That guy is talented. I want to work with that guy. And that's how they, they end up forming their bond. And of course, when Beatty plays for Hoffman, it's like, oh my God, my, the left brain to my right, this guy right here, he gets, he gets exactly what I'm trying to do. Yes. I get what he's trying to do. We should be a duet. We should pair up. We should team up and, and, and form our own group and become songwriters together. And that for them to look at one another and say, I found my equal is why I buy the love story. And this movie doesn't work without the love story. And Again, when you have two wonderful actors that will commit to that, I hate to go back to Dumb and Dumber, but it's a great, it's a great, uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, analogy for this is that's that's really all you have, that's really all you need in order to propel the story forward because I'm rooting for them and I want to see them succeed, even though I know at my core they're not going to, right? But you want that for them because they're going to try their best in order to achieve. And go and going run. off your going off your love story thing. It, it, it's it's interesting because, despite the fact that they are complete fucking morons when it comes to songwriting, okay, they are also very loving men. Oh with, yeah, with desires and yeah. with needs outside of the music industry. Yeah, like the the suicide attempt by Dustin Hoffman's character. Mm-hmm. Lyle's fucking right there. Yeah, and goes out on the ledge for him. Absolutely, okay? and he's got that beautiful monologue. You know, when he, which turns into a really awful, awful song, you know, when he says, you, you're, you're better, you have, you have it better than so many other people. You know, why, 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 why would you want to do this? And Hoffman's like, what are you talking about? He goes, because there's people worse off than you, poor people, sick people. And then he says a great line. He says, people who don't have anybody to go out on a ledge for them. Mm-hmm. And that's who Warren Beatty is for Dustin Hoffman, you know, and that's, and that's a really emotional, cool part of the movie that instantly gets lost because he turns it into an awful song. But that's their language of intimacy is songwriting, you know? And that's really, really, that's, I, I love that about it. And so that lets you know that you can count on their relationship. As an audience member, you can count on their relationship yes. winning the day. And conversely, when Warren Beatty's wife leaves <clears throat> him, boom, where does he go? He goes right to Hoffman, and Hoffman right is there to console him. Absolutely. And Hoffman even puts his own, I believe, just a girlfriend, to the side and says, I can't leave him. He he's breaks like, down every 10 minutes. He's I like have an to, orphan. Cow. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, I need to be there for him. They do such a great job. Here's the thing. The, the higher the rise, the bigger the fall. Mm-hmm. So the more I buy their love at the top of the film, 
you know, the more confident I am when things go south for them when they go overseas, I'm confident that they're going to make it through because of that love story. So I love the fact that they give us several examples. Uh, Elaine May, I'll say, gives us several examples of their love and how they're growing that very organically, by the way, because they're not they're not giving us BS filler scenes. These are legit emotionally driven scenes that will cause two people to bond. And so when I see that, I know from here, like I said, I'm, I'm rooting for them. That's all I need. The rest of the movie can be crap. The, the plot can be crap. If I want to see them succeed, then that's all I need as an audience member to be entertained and to root for these guys and want to stay to the end of the movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And be, and, and, it, it plays out very, very much like like a relationship. Oh, absolutely. They, they lie to each other. Yes. Dustin Hoffman doesn't tell him that he's talking to the CIA. Warren Beatty doesn't tell him that he's going to the camel market at Charlie Benny Mall to meet Muhammad to buy a blind buy camel. Buy a blind camel. <laughs> okay. That's terrible. So, right. And then they endure betrayals. Yeah. You know, when Shira Assel tells him the, the Dolomite beats out mm-hmm. in the desert, they mm-hmm. shine. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Warren Beatty's like, they didn't shine. When he realizes that he got lied to. You know, and and that's that, that's sad. But who's with him? Who's there to console him? Dustin yeah. Hoffman right. is with him, like right, right there. The uh, or how about when Hoffman? Black market. I mean, say how about when Hoffman's about to get executed for pretending to be a translator, <laughs> which he is not, and Warren Beatty is there oh, to exactly. Oh, there, our camels are being stolen. Oh, right. and Warren they understood Beatty, something. Exactly. Yeah, it was great. Uh, they save each other's ass. They do constantly. You know? Um. On stage as well when they're singing. Yeah, 100%, 100%. But when, when they're out there in the desert, okay, and they take turns as to who is the most gullible and who's about to get them killed, right. okay? Like when Hoffman, when the helicopter's there with the CIA, he goes, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, hey, they're here to rescue us, and he's waving his arms, and Warren Beatty's going, no, 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 no. They're getting low so they could shoot us. That's yeah. a gun. He goes, no, it's not. He goes, run, you idiot, run! And he's running in... You know, in a zigzag, and Dustin Hoffman's like, "What's going on? Why are they shooting at us?" It's just so great. It's so great. And then when they find the map, okay, and then they finally realize that they're in a position of power. They don't hold the government's feet to the fire for trying to assassinate them. They don't hold the the Moroccan government or the Moroccan city council at their feet to the fire for trying to have them murdered. Or Shira, anybody who lied to them, none of that. You know what they want? They want a record deal. And they want the American government to, 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 finance to pay it. for it and promote it <laughs> a worldwide. Live, a live album that they record in the lobby of the hotel where the U.S. diplomats stay because that's their, that's their residency, that's their home gig, you know, and that's all that they want, you know. And, and so it's super interesting. And now getting to the craft of filmmaking, all right? Like we spoke about last time in the first episode. Something that I really love that you really, um, for me, the mark of, of a real craftsman or woman, a craftsperson when it comes to filmmaking, is the opening and closing images, mm-hmm. okay? And you could introduce, and, 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 or you, I, could, I should just say you could bookmark a film and really encapsulate the voyage that you've gone on in the movie with just those two images. And so if you take the teaser out 
of Ishtar, where they're writing Dangerous Business, okay? The credit roll, okay? And when the movie actually starts in earnest, it's when Rodgers and Clark are in front of the record store window that we were talking about, Mm -hmm. looking at the Springsteen album that just dropped and looking at the Simon and Garfunkel greatest hits, and they're talking about how great they are compared to these people. The last image of the movie is that same record store window with Rodgers and Clark live in Marrakesh. Right. Okay. So opening image, closing image is the same, but vastly different, you know, and that I, I just, I love, I love filmmakers that do that. And well, and that's, I think a sign of a good writer. Right. And not to toot my own horn, but in the movie, my movie that you were in, okay. Jimmy, the Saint, the opening image, check it out guys. Jimmy, the Saint, (laughs) available Flix premiere, Flix premiere. Good stuff. Good stuff. The opening image is Jimmy and the John looking through the front windshield of a car. Right. Okay. In the dark. And the final image? Final image is looking through the rear window of a car with Jimmy and the girl during the day driving away from you. In a Buick LeSabre, folks. In a Buick Buick LeSabre. Um, In in, in a small way, that was was just uh, uh, my uh, first shot at opening and closing images in a feature, you know. Um, just to bookend the story. And so, uh, and I think uh, Miss May did it great in Ishtar. I think she did it great. All right, Brandon, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You've just finished your shift at a restaurant or at a hotel or something. You're in the mood for chili fries and a beer. Where do you go? Carnies. Carnies. Hands down. Hands down. Best chili on the strip. On a burger or on a dog. On a burger, on a dog, or on their fries. Oh, Especially God. on their fries. Uh, this chili is world famous. So if you guys are in the mood for some great chili on fries, burgers, or dogs, and you want an ice cold beer or soda, stop by Carney's Sunset Boulevard. Uh, also have a location in Studio City. Open late hours of the nights. Carney's on Sunset, guys. Check them out. So in my years in the uh, hospitality business, working in front of a hotel, um, <clears throat> uh, you meet a lot of people, especially working in LA, as you know, yeah. on the strip. Yeah. Tell you meet celebrities, musicians, politicians, whatever. Um, my the top of the list for me is I met Bruce Springsteen. I met him from Jersey. Oh, really? Yeah, it was huge. Oh, wow. It was huge. Uh, it was the CAA party. It was the year he was up for the song for Wrestler. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he shows up and the, the head of security. In case you missed that, guys, Brandon is from Jersey, so yeah. that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. The head of security for CAA knows I'm from Jersey, knows I'm a Springsteen fan. And that nice. night at the hotel, they're in charge. We're not in charge. Like CAA's yeah, of course. Charge. Right. Okay, that's their, for them. their deal. And this guy's name is Matt. And so I'm doing my thing. I'm running around and I hear Matt go, Brandon, get over here. I went, oh, shit. I went, What's over? He goes, I need you to get this door. I'm like, right. Okay, go. Get the door. And first it's Patty and then Bruce Springsteen. Wow. And I look at Matt and he's like grinning like it was a big setup. Right. Yeah. And he goes, hey, Bruce, this is my good friend Brandon. He was, he was looking forward to meeting you. And he shakes my hand. And he goes, hey, good to meet you, son. And the, the only thing I could think of to say was, I'm from New Jersey, too. <laughs> right? And he shakes my hand and he laughs and he turns to his wife and he goes, hey, Patty, this kid's from Jersey. And she goes, you're a long way from home, honey. And then just they walk into the party. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> it was great. But uh, also high up on the list. Is I several times I'd met both Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, hmm. and spoke to them specifically about the movie. Okay. okay, and both of them had the same reaction at first. They eyed me a little suspiciously, like, "Am I just a really brave 
kind of idiot who wants to break their balls about this movie right. because of its reputation. But right. then they quickly realized that I was a genuine fan of it and were able to talk just about, because I just wanted to talk to them about their acting performances in it yeah. because I was so blown away by it. Um, but the reason for their, I guess, trepidation to talk to people about it is because the movie is known as one of the biggest flops in the history of Hollywood. Yeah. Okay. To the point where when... Um, Kevin Costner's Waterworld went famously over budget and even more infamously tanked at the box office. They were calling it Fish Tar. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then years and years, decades later, um, uh, my friend and yours, Mitch Glazer. Yeah. Um, made a movie called Rock the, wrote a movie, Rock, Rock the, the Casbah, Casbah with Bill Murray. Um, our friend Jeremy was talking to Mitch at the hotel one night and, uh, Jeremy's a huge fan of Ishtar and was talking to Mitch about it and said, Mitch, what's it about? And he told him and uh, Jeremy goes, oh man, that sounds like Ishtar. It's great. And Mitch goes, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Don't even say that, man. Don't even say that. And then unfortunately, uh, Rock to Casbah didn't do that well that year. Um, but so the, the, the history of the film, despite its really genius and I don't throw that word around lightly, really genius uh, acting performances, um, is historically known as, as, as basically it's a cautionary tale for cost overruns and political infighting. And uh, Well, let's talk a little bit. Losses. Let's talk a little bit about why the budget Balloon. was so high. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, not with Balloon. Yeah. Why did they blow right by it? It's on location. So there's. Yeah. There is that. Yeah. So here, here's what we know. The budget for the film was $55 million. This is in 19... The production would have been in 1985 with a 1986 release. Yes. That film moved from 19, Christmas of 86 to the spring of 87. So they thought at first a Christmas movie, they were thinking Oscars. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a combination of things happening here. Budget, $55 million. It made 14. Yikes. Lost $41 million, each lead actor taking home $5 million for their performance. Not a small amount of money in 1987. And again, this is Warren Beatty's first film since Red. He hadn't worked in five years. So, so let's, $55 million budget. So correct. In 1991, when James Cameron directed T2, there was like an $89 million budget and people lost their fucking minds yeah. about how much money was right. spent on that movie. Right. And so... Four years later. Yeah, f just four years later. So $55 million was far and away the most expensive movie right okay that had been made then and it wasn't an action thriller no has one action yeah, scene really one, yeah it was a basically a character driven comedy that got that budget there's a lot of things in researching this movie in the mm -hmm. production of this movie that i learned that drove this cost up but i wanted to address just a couple of them okay go first one is is they did shoot in morocco for 10 weeks <laughs> now you might think, oh, it's Morocco. It's it's cheap. Columbia Pictures distributed this film. A, were at the time owned by Coca-Cola. Okay. So Coca-Cola thought, ah, we have a big foothold in Morocco. This will go well for us. We we have we have deals in place there. Shooting in Morocco is a good idea. We'll, we'll, we'll be fine. The problem is, is that no one... <laughs> No one in Morocco, at least locals, know how to work on a large budget film production, number one. Number two, there is a loss in translation problem where they ask for extras and literally 
thousands of people showed up to be extras. So now you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to go over budget because you're like, oh, wow, look at, I can actually shoot everything I want to shoot. Right. But now I've got to pay for all of this. But now things aren't happening as fast as they should because I can't communicate with you properly. You don't have the infrastructure to house my production. So things are running amok. That's the first problem. Problem number two, and this is again just, we don't know this for a fact. Maybe you can shed some light on this in in, in your conversations with Warren Uh and Dustin. Warren Beatty constantly butted heads with Elaine May on this film. To the point to where, at one point, we, we have crew members and actors who have heard the line from her, if this is what you want, you shoot it, I'm done. Wow. So at one point in the production, and we, we think this is the action sequence with the helicopter, she threw her hands in the air, walked off set. And Warren was left with the decision of, how do I handle this? They ended up squashing it. No, no, no. I want you to shoot it. Side note on this actually is that Elaine May was battling really bad toothaches on set this entire time and would constantly leave set to go over and deal with her pain in private because she didn't trust any of the locals in Morocco to deal with this toothache. So she's in constant pain in the middle of the Sahara Desert. When that's the leader of your production who is in pain and in constant discomfort, not only in that regard, but also in the 100 and probably 20 degree heat. And butting heads with your leading. And butting heads with your leading man, who's also the producer of the film, who can get you fired, and you have that pressure. On set in Morocco, which can't house your production, you're dealing with a lot. Oh, and you haven't directed a film in nine years. You're dealing with a lot, okay? I'm wondering, man, I I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, then here, let me set up one last thing about the production and, and, and why it went over budget. It's kind of two things tied together. They finished their 10 weeks in Morocco and they decide they're going to come back to New York, take a month break. Now you got to to send everybody away for a month and then you hope you get them all back. And you're going to read. Now you're going to shoot all your stuff that you need to shoot in New York. Two things happen there with a budget. One, the director of photography is an Italian. He had an Italian crew due to union laws there and how they work. You needed to have a backup crew. To fill in the hours. Guess what? That crew gets paid full time, even though they don't work full time. So now you're going to shoot in New York, not a cheap place to shoot, with two crews, and you're going to use one and a quarter of the crew. Number two thing happens. Warren Beatty goes to the head of the studio and says, Elaine cannot direct. And he says, all right, fine. We'll fire her. He goes, no, 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 no. I don't want her to get fired. I'm just saying she can't direct. Well, all right, no, no, you don't fire her, then I'll fire her. Well, no, if you fire her, then it's going to look bad because I was the one that vouched for this film in the first place because I wanted her to make it. I'll just shoot everything twice. I'll give her a take. I'll give me a take. The numbers on this, Brandon, that I told you about, the 61 to 1 was not the budget and the return. I misquoted. That was the amount of hours shot was 180 hours of film shot and only an hour of an an hour and 47 minutes in the final cut. That is a huge, just complete footage. I wonder where the footage is. And now we know where the money went. Here's the last caveat. There were three editing teams 
Elaine Mays, Warren Beatty's, and Dustin Hoffman's. Yeah. That's too many cooks in yeah, the kitchen. I wonder which cut we see. According to what I found, mm-hmm. a mediator was brought in, an agent of one of, who repped one of those three people, or maybe a couple of them, mm-hmm. and apparently he was given final cut. Now, we don't know this. According to Warren, it is her final cut. Oh, that's nice. But everybody had their input on it. And all the editors threw their hand up in the air because no one saw the film all the way through. Not one editor cut the film all the way through. It is literally a collaboration between multiple editors and multiple people directing the edit. Giving notes. Giving yeah. notes. Oh, that's got to that be such a fucking headache. Now... Holy shit. Last thing I want to talk about is the head of this studio, when they're getting ready to market the film, mm-hmm. apparently had some sort of issue with Warren Beatty. Didn't like him. Didn't want him to do well. Yeah. Almost sounds like he was going to cut off his nose to spite his face. And we get the impression, kind of pushed the film to tank. Warren Beatty at the time is also dating our lead actress in Ishtar. Oh, Isabella Johnny. Wow. Who does basically Elaine May resents because that's interfering with her ability to direct Warren Beatty. All of the uh, a looping at the end of the film that had to do with her. She, Elaine May, this is now Elaine May, let Warren take care of that because she did not want to be in the same room. You have all this animosity between the people. You have all this animosity and lack of belief from the studio. And then you have so much budgetary issues yeah. and logistical issues itself imploded. It didn't stand a chance. I don't care how good it is, no matter how well you did marketing it to audiences. It was number one, the weekend it came out it was yeah. number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second weekend, Beverly Hills cop two came out, destroyed yeah, forget it. Forget about it. Destroyed yeah. it. Okay. But when you're dealing with this much shit behind the scenes, there's no way for this film to succeed. There's just no way. You know who Isabella Johnny dated right after Warren Beatty? No. Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, get out of here. Fuck yeah. She's a gorgeous woman. Gorgeous and honestly, the scene where she's sitting talking to Hoffman about losing her brother. Yeah. Don't sit on the bed. It's too late for that. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is a great line. Yeah, it actually, it's funny, but that's a great line because what, what will women do? Yeah. They'll come over because she realizes she she misjudged yeah. Hoffman. She goes over to sit down next to him. And he's like, no, no, no. You don't get to sit next to me. You haven't earned that. It's too late I know that. what you're trying to do, and I call bullshit. But she sits down, and she literally, I'm going to give uh, uh, the editing here some real credit because it very sporadically cuts back to Hoffman. It really allows, yeah. it allows her to experience the moment, moment to moment. It's great. And, and speak about losing her brother and finding him dead which is Omar. a really, really tragic thing. And yeah. the way she describes it, he is smiling. And I knew that he died smiling and so that I would find him that way. Yeah. And she just begins. Great. It's a beautifully written scene. It's a beautifully acted scene. Hoffman does not overplay no. his sympathy. No, it's great. I'm telling you, it's my favorite scene in the whole film, I think, for non-comedic purposes. Sure. Unbelievably beautifully done. But... When you, I, again, getting back to this, I, I feel like when you have somebody maybe who's, who's this, this strong actress who is dating your strong leading man, essentially, you, you're, you're going to team up maybe against Elaine May. I've seen that happen. Absolutely. Right. 
I see. I was on a movie in Romania one time. Okay, where it was a horror movie, mm-hmm. and uh, the main monster bad guy, the Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger guy, yeah. guy in this in this movie, his name was uh, Deacon, mm-hmm. um, and uh, he was burned and he was you know crazy and burned in a fire, and the fire burned his vocal cords, so Deacon couldn't make a sound. Right? Okay, and uh, and the actor was this German kid, and um, and he was very method, and he's like. As soon as I get into the Deacon makeup, I don't, I'm not speaking. So don't expect me to speak. I'll write shit down on a bit, whatever. Okay. Yeah, right. I'm like, oh, you know, it's a fucking horror movie, dude. Take it <laughs> easy, right? But so we're cool, and he's being an actor guy and not speaking and grunting. <laughs> Two weeks in, he hooks up with the leading lady. Nah. Okay. Okay. All of a sudden, he's talking. If he thinks that the director's asking her to do something that isn't safe or, or if he's afraid oh. that she's too cold because we're in the woods of Romania, right. you know, and we're like, what the, what happened to Deacon? Just go back to him, not talking. <laughs> right. But so absolutely that happens. Actors who start banging basically, yeah. you know, they team up against, yeah. the, against the man. And, you know? and Elaine Maya, from what I read, really felt that. Yeah. And, and here's the thing here. If, I'm going to try and put myself in her shoes. You're going to go up against Warren Brady? How do you do that? See, but the guy's just coming off some Oscar winning films. Of course. He is Hollywood royalty. You've not directed a film in nine years. And you're the reason he's the reason you have the job in the first place. So you're going to sit there and now tell him what to do. No, you're going to give him what he wants. The studio is also going to back him over her. Yeah, yeah. And here's what ended up happening. All right, just I, I want it really quickly because yeah. I feel Elaine May worse of all than anybody because obviously Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, they did fine. This flop affected them in no way. Yeah. Do you know what Elaine May directed after this? No. Nothing. She's never directed again. They call it movie jail. Oh, movie jail. The, jail. Term, yeah. the term movie jail yep. or director jail is because of this film. Yep. What happens is, is the director is 100%, 100% responsible for the outcome of this film. It's director's medium, absolutely. And she has not directed a thing since she has directed one television episode of a TV show in 2015. Wow. Almost 30 there years later. Okay. She did not direct after this film. Luckily, her friend Mike Nichols mm-hmm. came to her nine years later and said, hey, I want to do this movie Birdcage. I'd like you to write it. And then two years later, wrote a fantastic Oscar-nominated uh, script called Primary Colors. Yes. So she has rebounded on the writing thing, never which is again. great. Never directed <clears throat> again. She wrote um, a Chris Rock movie, I think it was called Down to Earth. So if she's 2001. Direct, if she's writing but movies like that, she's done a lot of ghost writing in between. She's, oh, she's done yeah, a ton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And she probably has done some, some theater writing as well yeah. because a lot, a lot of Ishtar to me is set up like a play. Sure. It could very well be a play. Yeah. yeah. Um, probably be a better play than it would be a movie actually. But at, at the end of the day, she was out of her element directing. This was a huge budget movie. Um, she, at one point decided that they wanted to, um, she didn't want the dunes in the Sahara anymore. Oh really? So she said, I want to clear it. I want to make it flat. That was a $75,000 choice to make the Sahara flat by a a one square mile radius. It didn't really have any bearing on telling a story. She did 50 takes of the vulture scene. That's why she wanted it flat. She wanted it flat, and we get that. But we're talking about a huge... I I just don't think she understood the scope of what she wanted to do. She couldn't visually uh, get there in her mind on a budget that made sense. And that, again, 
You're going to have to blame some of the production on that. You're going to have to blame her for some of that. Right. The unfortunate fact <clears throat> is, is that so much was stacked against her anyway. She was kind of damned if she did, damned if she didn't. Well, here's my pushback to that. When I was in the lead up to, to directing my first thing, I was, I'd ask a lot of directors, like, what's the best advice you could give me? Yeah. You know? And a couple of them said, uh, performance, 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 performance. You've got to get the performance out of your actors. That's the main thing. Okay. And so we spent the first 15 or 20 minutes here talking about how we were blown away by the performances yeah. of Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Charles right. Grodin, everybody else who was in it. Yeah. Um, and so what surprised, it's a very much surprised me to learn that she and Warren Beatty were, were, were beefing so much because of the, the power of his performance and the strength of his performance and the, the beauty and like perfection of his performance in that, that, that usually doesn't jive with being at odds with your director because the director is the one who's in that monitor and is watching and, and what all that's going through a director's mind when they're a good director anyway, is when they're looking at that monitor is like, okay, was that honest? What I just watched on that take before I say back to one or before I say moving on, the question that answers that other question for you is, was that performance honest? Okay. Not, was it sexy? Was it funny? Was it, you know, uh, exciting? Was it honest? Okay. And so they don't hit a dishonest note in that movie. Agreed. Okay. And so she was at least making that call, you know? And so, but maybe she focused too much on performance and was out of her depth with regard to the larger macro style of Correct. directing a I big think, studio movie. I think, and I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to back you up. I yeah. think you're 100% right in the, in the regard that she got the best performance out of her actors possible. Yeah. Especially when you have two actors that are very specific in their choices that obviously had very passionate opinions about how they should be shot. Number two on that is, yes, I don't think she understood the scope right. of the production. Now, you, yeah, I, again, if you look at the other films she had directed prior to that, one was The Heartbreak Kid, which, again, was yeah. probably, in 1971, yeah. was probably a much smaller budget. Oh, when you're yeah. given $55 million. In the 80s. In the 80s. We'll, we'll chalk it up to a probably a $150 million yep. budget today. Agreed. Especially when you're talking about shooting in Africa. On location with two huge stars. For 10 weeks. Yeah. Um, with the unions and whatnot, what they are now, and the safety that need to happen, uh, need, would need to happen today in order to do that. Wow. You would never give that to somebody who hadn't done it before. No way. So I, I no want to say that I think she got a raw deal. I don't think she got the support she needed in order to make a movie that the studio was eventually going to back because when they did their market research, although it seemed to kind of test well, the studio had no belief in it. And then what ended up happening when you're supposed to have a Christmas 86 release, which moves to April or May of 87. Now the media gets wind of that and they start tanking it for you. Absolutely. Because, Oh, well clearly something's wrong. Something's gotta be wrong. with Why would they do this? Cause they just yanked it from Oscar contention to summer summer release. And Oof. so Oof. when we talk about the politics of filmmaking, this is what we're referring to. Yep. Okay. The amount of people it takes to make a movie even back then compared to day is, is night and day. But you had a lot of people even back in the eighties that 
have a right to whatever it is. It's either their money or their role or their movie or their script. Right. And everyone has an opinion and everyone believes in it and everyone's passionate about it. So I will say that at the end of the day, maybe the exception of maybe the studio head, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, no one sets out to make a bad movie, as the great Leonard Maltin says. No yep. one sets out to make a bad movie. Yep. Everything we've said is Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, and Elaine May. They all gave a shit. Yep. They all had the best interest of the project at heart. Yes, they were specific about how they wanted it shot as yep. actors. Yes, she was specific as a director. That's okay. Yeah. What you need to do is find that happy medium, that common ground. Like any job. This isn't just filmmaking. It's right. any job where there are people that all give a damn, that all have their role, yeah. that all think that they know what's best for the for the outcome. And that's okay. But can you all work together, put your differences aside, and share an opinion? So the the, the real, like I said, the unfortunate aspect of this is that she is the one that's going to have to fall on the sword at the end of the day. It was her career as a director that suffered. Thank God she got work as a writer after this because I think she is a fantastic writer. Oh, yeah. And writes great characters and great dialogue. Uh, Again, if you hadn't seen The Birdcage, God. Oh, it's so good. Talk about another love story between two men that's just unbelievable. Well, well, for me, the revelation in that was Hank Azaria. Well, we didn't know about him. As Agador Spartacus. We didn't know about him. We knew about him from Simpsons, but we didn't know about him as an actor. But oh, that well, that's a movie we'll talk about one day, guys. Absolutely. Don't worry. We'll get to the birdcage later. But Agador um, Spartacus. Yeah, Agador Spartacus. Um, <laughs> one of the greatest names. And he's Guatemalanis. But we'll talk <laughs> about it later. You can't handle my heat. No. Yes, Agador, I can't handle your Primitive heat. for a jur- estrogen ruckus. <laughs> so, well, here, here's little a, tangent. But one, here's, one of the movie yeah. I want to compare this to, I'm, I'm yeah. let Brandon take over here for no. the production aspect of it. No. One of the movie you might see as a comedy between two buddies that came out, I believe, two years prior to this, would have been a year, had it come out in 86, is Spies Like Us. Great movie. Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, John Landis directed. Yeah. A fantastic movie. Dan Aykroyd, uh, one of the writers on that one. A very great, uh, it's an espionage movie. Yeah. A buddy comedy. You'll buy there. Not so much a love story in that one between those no. two. Uh, no. There is love, no question, but sure. it's, it's uh, a completely different type of comedy. Um, but it's a very much a fish out of water story and, uh, I do recommend it. It, it is, it's going to have similar properties to it and characteristics to Ishtar as dumb and dumber does to Ishtar. So it's one I would recommend, uh, you guys check yeah, out the difference uh, and a, a, a terrific, you can really see the dichotomy in, in characters and how they're written between those two movies. Yeah. Cause in spies like us, Dan Aykroyd is good at what he does. Very true. And he's smart. You're very true. Right. Chevy Chase is bad at what he does. Right. But knows so there's it. more of an Abbott and Costello. Exactly. He knows yeah. he's bad at what he does, and so he tries to make up for it by being like a grifter and a con man and, mm-hmm. and, and, and right. messing with people. Whereas in Ishtar, both guys are terrible they're at equals. what they do, right. and they think that they're great. So it's, it's And their belief is in one another, not just themselves. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But yeah. here's, here's what, what, as we're nearing the end of this, here's something that... Um, that in the about five or six years ago, my brother sent me an article that really warmed my heart with regard to Ishtar. It was uh, the definitive list of the most underrated films of all time. Underrated. And Ishtar was like number three. Interesting. Okay. Uh, what? Is it Rolling Stone? Variety? Do you know? No, it was more of like a Leonard Malton type of okay. publication. Um, maybe Siskel and Ebert. So, okay, all right. Because the main... And so maybe like a critic's choice. And the criteria about it was, um, what made it underrated was 
uh, critics went back and rewatched movies that they fucking panned uh-huh. at the time of release. Yeah. And rewatched them again. And how would you review it today? Right. Okay. And every critic that shit on Ishtar, okay, upon rewatching it, said, oh, you know what? Maybe I was a little prisoner of the moment with regard to this movie and with all of this, the, 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 the stuff leaking out from the studio and how damaged the relationships were and how over budget it was and all that. Yeah. Maybe I missed the forest for the trees. This yeah, is because right. these performances are legendary. The movie, It's a sweet, exciting story. Fish out of water, obviously, love story between these two characters. Um, very, very funny. Uh, incredibly creative. It's hard enough to write a song, just to write a song. Right. When you're trying to write a good song, that's even harder. When you're trying to, tank to one. write a bad song well, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. And they did that a dozen times yeah. in this movie. They very adeptly and adroitly wrote terrible songs. That's so difficult to do. And so when you watch the movie, think about that. Yeah. Think about how difficult it is to do that shit on purpose. And then commit to that. And totally commit to it. And one other thing I did want to point out that I forgot to mention earlier that I really liked, the the political unrest in Morocco that this movie, you know, sets up and, and talks about is very well done. Yeah. They're, like Brandon had touched upon this earlier, the, the, the CIA's involvement mm-hmm. with the Moroccan government versus what the, the rebels, you know, so to speak, the, yeah. uh, the revolutionaries were yeah. doing. Um, and, and, you and, know, and I, I think it, it's beautifully set up. It is, and they make it very, they, they, don't, they don't dance around it at all. They have the emir say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Correct. None of us are friends here. Right. But I have a bigger enemy than you. Yeah, right. That you, we happen to share. Yeah. You know? And the fact that these guys are thrown in the middle of that, again, that's the fish out of water that Absolutely. I was I was talking about earlier with spies like us. But this is, uh, you know, I I just, I, I didn't, I didn't expect to get that story once I got the, the beginning of the movie. So I will say, if you guys are going to watch this movie, and I hope that you do, you know, realize that while the, the movie doesn't start out with a strong story in the beginning, the middle of it and, and all the way through the end is very strong in terms of plot. There very is strong. actually a lot going a lot on. There. There's plot. a lot to unpack. A lot of and betrayal. Yeah. A lot of, yeah. There, there is actually a lot going on. I just want to tip my cap to Elaine yeah. May. I think she is a really fantastic writer. And, um, and it is imminently quotable. Oh, yeah. No, it is. Imminently quotable. Um, Scorsese, Tarantino, Edgar Wright, all quoted as loving this movie. Yep. Um, yep. I think it is one that you guys should check out with an open mind. Yeah. Uh, you have to go in there, there with the right attitude. Yeah. I think Brandon would concede that. You go into it with kind of a, a dumb and dumber um, I, expectation, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. You're going to get more in terms of story and acting is uh, subjective. So, but I, in my opinion, it's a different kind of buddy comedy. Yes. Um, so give it that chance. I think um, when you, when you watch it to allow it to get, just give it time <laughs> to affect you. Definitely Cause it's going to, it's it going to take probably the first 15 to 20 minutes for you to really get into it. Am get I into what you're, what you're seeing that it, right. it's, it's that it's this, what Steve Martin said about stand up comedy is making the people wait as long as you can before you release that tension and let them laugh with the punchline. Right. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And, um, they never let you do that. Lewis and Clark don't ever break character and say, all right, we were just fucking around. We know we're being it's Rogers and Clark, not Lewis and Clark. Oh, sorry. Roger, <laughs> sorry. Rogers and Clark. They never, they never wink at the camera and say, right. we know this is silly. We're in on the joke yeah. with you. 
they're not in on the joke. It's it's legit. Yeah. And here's the last thing that I got for this. Um, speaking to both Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman about the movie. Name okay. drop. Okay. Speaking to both of them about the movie. <laughs> it's really funny because Warren Beatty wasn't at the hotel. We're for years and years and years. We're we're recording this uh, in Hollywood, right near the corner of Sunset and Laurel Canyon. Um, our polling place was way up on Mulholland off of Laurel Canyon. Mm. Okay. My wife's family so we've been voting for years and years and years right down the street from Warren Beatty's polling place. We'd see him every election day. Okay. And my wife's late father would always say the same thing to him. Anyone ever tell you you look like Warren Beatty? And Warren Beatty would always say the same thing. Less and less, my friend. Less yeah, and less. That's funny. <laughs> okay. But standing in line one day um, at the polling place talking to him about Ishtar, he said the same thing Dustin Hoffman said to me. Um, it doesn't matter what anybody says about that movie. It's one of the best times I've ever had making a movie. Wow. Okay. He enjoyed the character so much because it was so different. For, he was oh, always a handsome, incredibly different leading man, yeah. guy who gets all the chicks. And to play like an introvert, jealous of, of, of Dustin Hoffman. Insecure, insecure weak. weak. Like all of that. He said, yeah. he, he, said he loved it. So, well, I mean, and you talk to any actor that's, I mean, going from something like, well, and what do you do right after that? Dick Tracy. But he did Bonnie and Clyde. He did Reds. He did Kevin Can Wait. He did all these movies where he yeah. is the strong leading man. Yeah. And then he goes right back from there to Bugsy and Bullworth. But it's like, yeah. that was his typecast, if you want to call it that. Yeah. When you have the opportunity to play the complete opposite, yeah. whether you're Charlize Theron doing Monster, all of a sudden yeah. not being the, you right, know, the... Right, right, the, of, the, uh, the, the blonde, the, the the blonde bombshell anymore. Yeah. You know, you have that opportunity to play that role. That's got to be attractive sure. to an actor to finally flex that muscle and say, yeah, look, I can do this too. How good was he in Bugsy, man? Yeah, there's a lot, that's a there's, great film. There's some similarities with the two characters because Bugsy was kind of like this oafish kind of, you yeah. know, super jealous, like, hey, what are you doing? You know, yeah. kind of guy resorting to violence all the time. But also there was something that he longed for that was more. He longed for it to be a little bit more civilized. Guys, I mean, I don't know if we're going to have, I hope we have millennials. I hope we have millennials yeah. listening to this podcast at some point. I will strongly urge you, and I know Brandon will back me up for you guys to watch all of Warren Beatty's work, starting with, Absolutely. Um, you have to start with Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. But Absolutely. You've got to start with that and kind of watch his progression as an actor yeah. because he also, at that kind of early on, also becomes a filmmaker. Yeah. And so really a great one. Yeah. Really give Bugsy uh, a good wall, uh, Bullworth. Just so, I mean, he, he, Warren Beatty, it's, it's tough to overstate how famous he was in his prime. Basically. Very much. Yeah. And not only that, but also I think you could, you, you can kind of call him the, the first Brad Pitt. Agreed. Women loved him. <laughs> yep. He was a lady killer. And also, Contrary to many uh, celebrities today, very, very private. Does not do interviews. Didn't do any um, nope. promo work for the movies. Did not do any kind of you professional or person. Never did any talk never, shows. Like Wasn't Pitt. on Carson. Wouldn't do it. Like Pitt. Pitt yeah. does that a little bit. Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. probably most of all. Yeah, exactly. Edward Norton, another good example. Yeah. These guys are considered maybe, you know, really attractive, good-looking guys that just don't do that kind of work. And you have to respect that because I have no problem with Warren wanting to keep his life private. Right. No, of course Keep not. it private. Go right not. ahead. And if you've ever seen him interviewed, guys, I saw him on Barbara Walters one time. 
not not a strong interview because <laughs> he doesn't want to be there in the first place. Agreed. So if you don't want to be there, obviously you're not going to open up. It's going to be a crap interview, and it, and it was. So, yep. agreed. Obviously, Dustin Hoffman's work speaks for itself. Give that a watch. Uh, anything that he's ever done, I think, is worth watching. He's someone who handles comedy as well as drama, and you don't think about that when you think of Dustin Hoffman. I love watching most of all comedy in his dramas. Yep. Rain Man. Rain Man's a great example of somebody that. Yep. Uh, I'm sorry, of a character that would play that you wouldn't think there would be much comedic moments for it. He has five great comedic moments in Rain Man yep. when he's really not supposed to. Kmart sucks. Court, 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 course, your shorts are on the highway. There's just so many great, <laughs> great moments in there. So, again, I think when you, you guys, I, I hope you give Ishtar a chance. Um, Am I you using know? you, Ray? Am I using you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shut up. Shut up, Ray. He's he is answering a question from a half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Brandon and I get along. Um, guys, thanks so much for listening. Um, we're going to have a, a new movie for you next week, or maybe we'll have a filmmaker next week. We're not yes. sure yet, but uh, give Ishar a chance. You know, uh, yeah. write in on social media. Let us know what you guys think of it. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.